Welcome back to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to offer hope for the overwhelmed by making real life simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 155 of Leading Simple. I'm your host, Rusty George, where we try to help the overwhelmed. Today, if you've ever felt like you are overwhelmed about all the things that need to be done in the world, where do you start? How do you help? How can you be inspired and also inspire others? Today's your day. We get to hear from Danielle Strickland. She's an author, speaker, trainer, and global social justice advocate. Her aggressive compassion has served people firsthand in countries all over the world, from establishing justice departments for the Salvation Army to launching global anti-trafficking initiatives to create new movements to mobilize people towards transformational living. Affectionately, she's called the Ambassador of Fun. She's the host of DJ Strickland Podcast, co-founder of Infinium, Amplify Peace, Brave Global, and founder of Women Speakers Collective. Danielle is married to Stephen, lives in Toronto with their three sons. Cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. Today, we're sponsored by Growmentum. It's an incredible organization that helps you as a church leader work on it, not just in it. And so much of our time is spent on the whirlwind of day to day. This helps you move beyond that. You definitely want to check out growmentumgroup.com. Thank you to the team at Growmentum and their sponsorship of the podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast and getting your word out to the many people that listen to Leading Simple, just contact me, rgeorge at reallifechurch.org. Well, now enjoy my conversation with Danielle Strickland. Hey, I want to welcome to the podcast Danielle Strickland. She is a legend among communicators and authors and uh, justice workers. She just does an incredible job, has started a lot of great organizations in helping the church. Danielle, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. I'm affectionately now what I call a kingdom serial entrepreneur. So I just keep creating things, uh, beautiful things and trying them out. And some of those things have really been successful and some I'm still creating new stuff and just really having a a great time trying to create ways to motivate, inspire and mobilize the church uh, to be light and hope in the world. It seems like what you're doing right now is so needed. I mean, it's always been needed. You know, we think about Jesus words of, you know, Uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, With that in mind, you know, where do you see your role? And and I want to use a few terms uh, that that are on your website, spiritual leader, justice advocate, communicator, peacemaker. Boy, these are just wonderful things. (laughs) How do you see your role kind of work in partnership with the church and not I hate to say in opposition, but sometimes organizations start because they feel like the church is failing. Others start to help promote the church, which is what you do. How do you see the difference there and how do you make that happen? I guess a lot of that comes from posture. Hmm. So I think posture is kind of key in all of this that I see myself as a part of uh, the church. I think some of the apostolic gifts that I possess, probably like apostle sort of starting new things, even seeing the strategy for how things could work and 
prophetic in that they're always a little bit disruptive and edgy to the existing status quo. Mm. So in many ways, churches are thrilled I'm not inside of them, (laughs) (laughs) but can come alongside of them. And so I think that's just a posture thing. I love the church. I've been impacted by it. I've planted. I still am. I have a home-based network here of tons of folks that we're equipping to be the church in their own communities. And I'm part of the local teaching team here at a local church in Toronto called The Meeting House. And I serve at the food bank at my local church, Salvation Army Church. So I would say that um, I love the church. I mean, I actually literally think the church is the hope for the world. And um, so I I think that's just a posture. I want to serve. What I don't want to do, though, is conform. I don't want to be part of systems that aren't working. You know, I don't want to just be complicit in allowing the church to kind of sink into a a status quo and be okay with how things are. I don't want to do any of that. Mm. If I need to provoke, I'll provoke. If a disruption is necessary, then let's disturb uh, what's uh, what's happening so that we can change uh, the world. Oh, well, you said so much there. I'd love to spend some time on one, that last statement you made about being a disruptor. Typically, when we think of a disruptor, our well, let me just say it this way. When people want to disrupt right now, they just take to social media and blast people. Um, how how do you feel like God has called you to be a, um, a, a humble disruptor a, with that kind of posture, as you just mentioned, in a way that's effective rather than just, you know, lighting yourself on fire? Yeah, I think that peacemaking is holy disruption. So this is an interesting thing, because when we think about peacemaking, we often think about peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, peacekeeping is different. I always say, if you can rewire your brain to think about troublemaker, but apply that to peace, then we're in, we're in the ballpark together. So a, a peacemaker, I want to stir up, and by peace, of course, I mean the shalom, the wholeness, the complete plan that God has, God's kingdom coming to the earth, reconciliation, right relationships, God making all things right again and whole again, bringing them back to himself, but also in communities and uh, for uh, folks who have been oppressed and people who are in wrong relationships, bringing them back into right relationships. So I would say that holy disruption part of me probably used to be like when I was younger and living in like really poor neighborhoods and filled with angst, my uh, desire might not be as kind towards the church. But as I've grown older and realized that every church actually has this beautiful calling to be the city on a hill, right? To be this uh, this prototype of of what the world could be mm. and what relationships could look like if they were honest and good and whole and right. Uh, then it, it's, lend, it's lent me to move more towards partnership and collaboration. And so I guess what I mean by disruption is just speaking the truth in love. Mm-hmm. Where are those areas? You know, so I, I wrote a book uh, last year called Better Together about how men and women can lead together in the era where we were pretty convinced we couldn't mm. and shouldn't. Uh, and in all that like tension of like all of these, well, even still, we're just, we're still reeling again from yet one more evangelical leader who was an abuser and harasser of women. Mm. And so then the question becomes, instead of this knee jerk reaction of being all defensive and like, so it's us versus them, a peacemaker is like, oh no, there's no us in that. That's not a thing that exists in a peacemaker's framework. There's only us. And so how do we together fix, mend, heal and then work together to, to, to tell the world there's another story. You mentioned the church sometimes sinks into kind of the mundane. 
and kind of gets used to things. I mean, COVID has really shaken the church up to kind of wake up from some of our oh, habits, I should say, habits of, uh, of just complacency. Where, where do you see that uh, the most right now? And where do you see some examples of some churches getting out of that and really making a difference? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think you nailed it. Like COVID has forced every church uh, to go where a lot of churches have not wanted to go. And uh, so this is fascinating. I've, I've talked to a lot of pe- uh, pastors and uh, who are despairing, you know, in so many ways, like just really uh, both just in their own life going through grief and then the, the, the reality of the extra work uh, to pivot at such a, like so drastically and in such a hurry and a lot of people not being ready for that sort of an online in- in- engagement. Um, but I, I was assuring them that all the churches that are really growing and have grown over history almost always had leaders who weren't present. And I think that's an interesting, you know, we call it the ministry of absence. Uh, I was reading to them, you know, revolutions that are flourishing with their leaders in jail. Uh, Paul the Apostle being a great example of that. I mean, most of the churches he planted, he planted from a, uh, for a little while and then from a distance and then from a jail cell. So clearly, God's not concerned <laughs> that you can't be present with your people because he can. And I think I have a hunch that part of the secret of these growing uh, places, like even in China, for example, where the church can't really even gather, or Iran, where the church can't gather publicly. It can't gather publicly because they risk arrest and imprisonment and, and death. So it's not even just an infection they're worried about. They're worried about like real physical death. <laughs> and um they can't gather and they're growing exponentially. Right. And what's happening? What's the difference? Well, I think the invitation in this season for every church is a, a divine disruption to say, what is it that church is supposed to do and be? And how are we the church? So I think in this moment, we have this opportunity to actually make disciples mm-hmm. rather than spectators. And this is hard because we're like, ah, and people feel overwhelmed because they're not used to having to uh, to do the praying and do the inviting and do the ministering to their own neighbors. Mm-hmm. But this is exactly what the gospel is. So I think it's going to be really beautiful. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, for me personally, because I'm such a structured person, the frustration was this was not on my calendar. Right. Okay. <laughs> and the other thing was that I've worked for the last almost 30 years to figure out how to do church. And now the model changed. Right. So it was just so, you know, jarring for me. And I felt like we were pretty much maybe not on the cutting edge, but right there behind it. We, we already had an online presence and doing all those kind of things. But for me, it's just been such a, uh, you know, uh, a, a quick change in everything and mainly in the way of thinking of, okay, how do people connect? It used to be building first and then a group. Now it's online first, then an online group, and then maybe one day the building. So everything has changed and mobilizing people just becomes that much more important. Yeah. And I mean, I think those other things that we had down yeah. Uh, were not the essential thing anyway. No. So in so many ways, it's such a gift, isn't it? Even though it's a painful gift to be disrupted in this way, because those essential things that actually are the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower 
are, are, that's where that's it. That's all that matters right now. And that's what we're focused on right now. And, and I pray it stays that way till we get that sorted. Yeah. Cause I actually think that's the essential thing. The other things are just kind of like, I would call icing on the cake and they're fun. I think it's fun to gather and have a kind of cool worship experience. That's all great. But the essential thing is this discipleship thing. Are people following Jesus? Do they know how, are they loving their neighbors? Do they know how, uh, are they leading other people telling the good news? Are they offering hope and light in a despairing dark culture? I mean, these are all the, mm. the essences of what it means to be Christian. So I'm praying, at least in my own, I, I share the frustration. It is frustrating, but I also share, I see sort of how God might possibly use what looks like uh, a terrible, wasted, frustrating time right. for our best good. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to talk to you about something that I know you're passionate about, and I love talking about this with people, and that is just the art and craft of communication. Uh, you speak, uh, obviously, at your home church, but you speak at a lot of conferences. Sometimes you speak to groups of 10 or 20 and sometimes thousands. Um, I want to talk to you just a little bit about you know, becoming a communicator, because I think there's a lot of people listening that think, I think I've got something to say, but where do I start? Um, and you know, what am I supposed to do? So, um, you know, where did this begin for you? How did you become a teacher, a communicator? And how did you know that you were supposed to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I always loved talking. <laughs> I'm, uh, and so in some ways, you know, I know a lot of public speakers who are actually introverts and it's painful for them to speak. You know, that's not me. Mm. Uh, I'm extroverted. I love meeting people. I love making a fool of myself in public. I love, you know, like I, I, I love, um, uh, that. And I've always been that way. I've always been a good uh, talker, as it were. If you needed to be convinced, even as a young adolescent, you know, if I was going to get in trouble, I would convince 10 people to come with me. <laughs> um, so always been that way and uh, and always just really loved it. I started to pay a little bit more attention to what exactly I was doing. To tell you the truth, I did it so intuitively uh, that I never really paid much attention to what I was doing. I just loved doing it. People seemed to like me doing it. So it just worked out. But um, it was never my main intention. My main intention was always to build the kingdom. You know, my main intention was always discipleship and church planting and justice. And then talking was just this thing I did on the side for fun. As a matter of fact, almost all my church plants were non-Sunday based. They were all cell based uh, that happened all throughout the week. And, uh, and I remember a, a, a person I was discipling said to me, she saw my name on a poster speaking at a church in the city. And she said, could I come with you to this church? And I said, well, I guess so, if you want to. Like, why do you want to come? And she said, I never heard you speak before. Hmm. And that would have been the case with the you know 300 people that were part of our church. They would have never uh, heard me preach unless they came to another event because we weren't big on the gathering in those days. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it was really just a sort of fun outlet. And then I, I started a thing called the Women's Speaker Collective mm -hmm. because I started realizing as I was speaking on these stages, and mostly all to mixed crowd, I never saw myself as a woman speaker ever till someone pointed it out. I've only ever uh, been a, a preacher, like a speaker. And so I, but I started noticing that there were, there weren't many others, you know, especially in mixed audiences, virtually none. And I started asking the organizers, like, why aren't there? Like, where are the women? Like, what, is there a shortage? Like what's happening? Of course, I come from a denomination that's egalitarian. So I had many female preachers to look up to. And, and so then a whole bunch of things started to emerge that uh, they didn't know where the women were. They couldn't find them. And then when they did find them and ask them, the women said no. And uh, then when I started asking the women why they're saying no, 
Uh, and then I started doing a bunch of research and realized that there is this massive discrepancy in self-confidence and assertion for women speaking in the church. I would say in culture, but also in the church specifically, obviously around theology, you know, the, the, the dozens and dozens of really effective communicators I've heard that have told me, you know, their whole life they were told, God does not want you to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fighting past sort of all that theology and bad practice. And then coming to this place where, okay, finally they're able to speak. And then of course, when that comes, that day comes, they're speaking with all the pressure of female kind on top of their shoulders. You know, (laughs) I remember a a, a male conference organizer said to me, do you know a woman who could come speak and just knock it out of the park? And I said to him, why does she have to knock it out of the park? Like you've got at least 10 male speakers here who are first basers at best. (laughs) Like, couldn't she just be like a sec, a solid base hitter? Like, like does the woman always have to be the, you know, the Babe Ruth of the crowd? Like, yeah. so I think even just sort of stuff like that, I mean, even the conference, we, we both had a laugh, but it really made him think, right? Because when it comes to right. a male speaker, he'll often be like, oh, he's solid every time he just, you know, it's solid. Uh, but when it comes to a female, there's some other expectation that happens. So anyway, we, we, we developed this thing to try to raise up female communicators and see if we could just break some of those gaps down, uh, both in platforming women voices to say, oh, hey, are you looking for women? We have at least a dozen of them here that are knocking out of the park communicators. And, uh, but also for women themselves to speak together in a collective, to begin to exercise their voice, to practice. So I find, you know, one of my biggest points of advice is practice. Mm-hmm. practice speaking. Right. And this is one of the great discrepancies when it comes to females, because often guys in youth group or when they're younger, they're sort of, they have all this practice space. So by the time you get to a platform, if you're a male communicator, you've almost always had a good, you know, five to 10 years of practice in you, uh, which is what everybody needs. But of course the females often aren't offered that. And so they don't have that practice space. So we just try to say like, as much as you can speak anywhere. I spoke to so many drunk people, honestly, hostels and shelters and youth groups. And, you know, I got paid in Starbucks cards if it was a really good gig. Um, So I think the idea too of like setting your sights on this kind of big stage with celebrity status and like people bringing you water and I mean, get all that out of your head and uh, maybe get back to posture again. Why is it that you want to communicate? What is it that you feel called to communicate? And then practice communicating that for no other reason that you can't be quiet, that you just have to say that to help these people. Mm. Because ultimately, every gift is about serving. And if you're not serving with your gift, stop using that. It's not a gift. That's really good. I'm reminded of several different examples of people that did that well. There was a conversation I heard that I think it was Jim Collins had with Peter Drucker. And he, he went on and on about how he was trying to be successful. And Drucker just said these final words to him. He said, stop trying to be successful, just be useful. Right. And I thought, boy, that is, that is ministry in a nutshell. And unfortunately, because of social media and all the platforms everybody has, we see these success stories or we see the, the people with the huge stages and, uh, platforms and, um, fancy tennis shoes. (laughs) And, And we tend to think, well, you know, that's what I, that's step one for me. And it's not, um, my kids are big John Mayer fans, and they told me a story about John Mayer talking about, you know, everybody wants to write a song and then put it on YouTube and expect to be discovered when really a songwriter starts with writing a thousand songs alone in your room, and then eventually something sees the light of day. And 
I think of that when it comes to communicating. You communicate wherever, whether it's in a car, <laughs> a living room. Yeah. As you said, a hostel, drunk people. I assume the drunk people were there, not in the youth group, but you know, who knows? It was a mix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. I've spoken to some of those youth groups as well. But you know, any gig you get, mm-hmm. if you got something to say, you feel like God's telling you to do it, you do it. So then comes the question of how do you do it? You know, yeah. I've heard you talk about just the prep process and the presentation process. And you call it cooking up a good talk uh, with the uh, the marinade, the prep, and the delivery. Can you walk yeah. our listeners through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. This is a great irony because I'm I'm a very bad cook. <laughs> so when I was doing this, I was like, why did I use a cooking analogy? I don't even know what I'm talking about. But uh, I used it because it, it actually is, is if you want meat to taste really good, you marinate it. That's what I hear. I never do it, but uh, you marinate it because the flavor gets in there. And I would say I, I'm specifically talking about uh, cooking up a good preach probably here, like a talk that you're going to use as a sermon. You're using the Bible as your text. And of course, all the great preachers will tell you uh, or they should tell you that the Bible gets in you before it comes out of you, mm, right? That's right? I mean, quite literally, the, the apostles told by Jesus in, in Revelation, right? Eat this thing. Yeah. All through scripture, like eat this book. And I would say the marinade is the scripture getting into you. So if there's a specific, I would say, grab a story, take a story, a, a Uh, your favorite one and marinate in that thing. And that includes studying the context. So I often say like, read the whole book, go ahead. It's not going to kill you. It'll take you like an hour to read through John. Uh, Just go ahead, read the whole book and get a feel for like the context of the thing. Uh, I often use a technique where I do different perspectives. How, how does it feel reading this from this point of view? How does it feel reading this text from this point of view? What if I read this text from this point of view? How would it change? And one of my favorite techniques, which uh, Reading While Black is a new book about this uh, in terms of culturally, what would this sound like if you're a person who's from a black culture? What, what would this sound like? Another guy, Bob Eckblad, does this uh, book called Guerrilla Bible Studies. And he spent years and years studying the Bible. He's a he's a very gifted theologian, uh, and, but he studies the Bible with prisoners hmm. uh, in a justice way. And he says like the scriptures have never been more alive for him than when he studies the Bible with scripture with prisoners. So I often say if you can, this is a really great technique to actually read the Bible with people who are different from you, yeah. and just ask a lot of questions. So this would all be part of the marinade uh, and part of the preparation. A lot of the preparation, by the way, when you're cooking, uh, like say that meat, you let it marinate, you did all sort of that uh, a behind the scenes thing. A lot of the preparation for that, the, the meat is to actually cut off a lot of things. Yeah. So one of the great mistakes communicators make because you're invested in the process, you've actually put time in this research is that you've got to show everybody your research. And I often liken it to like, you know, imagine going over to somebody's house for dinner and they serve this beautiful steaming bowl of broccoli. And then they take you into the kitchen and show you all the bits they cut off of it. Um, nobody wants to see that, throw that out, you know, or even better save it for later or put it in something else like a follow-up resource or, you know, a to, to read list or just stick it in your back pocket for another preach sometime. But a lot of really, uh, mistakes that are made in terms of like a really great communicator and a not so great communicator is around the preparation, Mm -hmm. uh, is crafting the story is leaving the essence in and taking out all that stuff that people don't need to chew through. Right. Um, and again, it depends on what you're trying to do when you're communicating and who you're communicating to. But I would say that that prep part is a big part. And then you're, that part of that uh, delivery, of course, is setting the table. 
you want people to come eat. So what do you do when you're doing that for a good meal? You're setting the table really nicely. You're doing some sort of a centerpiece. You're presenting this food and people just can't wait to dig in because it looks good and the essence of it is good. And I would say that's part of that communication is, does this feel good? Does this sound like you set up a, an opening story that should be wetting everybody's appetite so that they can't wait to hear what it is that you have to say next. Uh, they want to dig into the word. So that's all in the delivery. So that's kind of, you know, just really broadly, those are kind of some, some key ways of cooking up a good talk. Hey, let me just pop in here for a second and interrupt our conversation by having another conversation. And that is, did you know that our recent book, After Amen, is now on Audible? And so if you're a person that likes listening to podcasts, you might like listening to a book. So just go over to Audible. You can pick it up there, download it, listen to it. And it was a lot of fun to read it and a lot of fun to share it. Now, back to the show. So that's a lot of the uh, behind the scenes stuff, some of the delivery. But when you're thinking about the delivery itself, you know, are there any communicators you think, boy, that's, that's the way my mind works. I like to teach like them, not necessarily mimic them, but that's my style. Um, are, are there things that you think through, okay, I want to make them laugh and then I want to make them think, and then I want to make them do, or, you know, whatever those little check, those boxes you check off are, how do you process that, the, the actual delivery? Yeah. So usually, and this is interesting too, because I do talk to people a lot and women sp- specifically about this, that we do have a dominant style in the church. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, that's sort of like, um, I would say that I probably fit the dominant style uh, which is a little bit more of a masculine approach to communication in some ways, but uh, that's very naturally fits my personality style to tell a good story or to tell a good joke and then to move into the points of the text and like kind of back and forth like that. But um, I think what's done us a really good favor uh, is the TED Talk phenomenon in this way, hmm. where you can actually start listening to people who come at it from a completely different angle. So more analytical thinkers would have a really good chart and a good presentation, and everyone will be like riveted by that conversation. Or people come at it from a different tone or funnier or graphics, or, you know, you have so many more tools to play with than just, you know, one guy walking around on the stage. Um, so I think I, I often tell people, if you want to be a good communicator, listen to great communicators. And so even, even my son and I just listen to Ted talks sometimes just for fun. And we've learned lots of fun things, but also just paying attention to how delivery works. Cause all of them have been coached. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would also say like, listen to other preachers and listen to preachers different than you too, so that you can start, you know, cause we also get locked into this like one style, um, so I remember going to, I went to North Point to speak at Andy Stanley's toy, church and, you know, Andy Stanley's the analytical, he's got the yeah. board, you know, he created that like modern chalkboard thing with the screen on the stage and stuff. <laughs> and so I decided I'm going to try that. I'm going to try, like, I, I do not do that. I don't do PowerPoints. I do it because I'm, I'm like a confused mess. So I, I do sort of what I call preteen jazz. Hmm. So I've got about, you know, 20 stories and I've got, you know, four points and I'm going to mesh these together live and it's going to be awesome. It's going to keep me on my toes. So PowerPoints are out for me usually, but I decided that I wanted to try something different. I wanted to try speaking like with the magic of this chalkboard and, you know, sort of all the things. And I would say it was a decent preach, but I didn't knock it out of the park because I was trying a style that's not mine. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now I think I could grow in it. I could, pra- if I practiced it, it would get better. It would probably serve everyone better in terms of organization. But mm. I think, uh, if I'm truest to myself, the way that I communicate is when I'm truest to my own, you know, voice, when I find my voice and, uh, especially for women, this is really hard because for so many years they've been, um, unvalidated, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't, they finding their voice is probably the battle. And uh, this is a posture kind of almost before you speak, where you get to this place where you agree with God about who you are. Mm-hmm. And then you can stop apologizing for who you're not. Mm. And, uh, and you can stop trying to please everybody and just focus on uh, letting what is within you get out of you. So I would say find your most natural style. For me, I'm always asking this question. This is my mother always used to ask this when I would preach. She would say, so what? Yeah, yeah. Just so what? And so in my head, every time I preach, I have this question, so what? Because if there's no so what, if it doesn't matter, uh, maybe we could have saved each other a lot of time. Yeah. So for me, I have this question, so what? And then I often ask, what is the thing they're walking away with? So there's a little bit of a preaching math thing. You know, you say three different things, three different times, and it equals zero. Right. You say one thing three different times and it equals one. So if you can get people to walk out of your preach and remember one thing, (laughs) that's the thing. Uh, And that's the thing that you want to hammer home as much as possible in one, in one speak. Oh, that's so good. And so, so true. I, (laughs) I remember I had a preaching professor that used to say, your, your goal in preaching is not to get up and get something off your chest. (laughs) Right. It's, it's not just to impress the audience with how much, you know, and have, I mean, we've all sat there and listened to people for 30, 45 minutes, and we think, well, I think they were a lot more entertained by that than anybody else was, because <laughs> they just really enjoy hearing themselves talk. Yeah. But uh, but as you said, you know, the multitude of points and ideas and all that sometimes gets really, really confusing. Now, teaching is one thing. Writing is another. Mm-hmm. And I've experimented with both and uh, had, you know a little bit of success with teaching and minimal success with writing. It's just so hard um, because it's almost the opposite in drawing stories out and, um, you know, making a, a chapter is much longer than a message. And But you've written a lot of books. T- tell me what you like about writing and maybe for our aspiring writers out there, how do you know it's time to do that? Yeah. I mean, again, I think you're, I think I've had mediocre success as well. (laughs) So I'm not sure I'm the best person, but I will say this, like, usually I would write a book when, well, uh, sometimes I was asked, you know, uh, particularly a couple books I was asked to write on, uh, by a, you know, a multi-denomination event said, would you write this for us? Cause it keeps coming up and we really want to deal with it. And we think you're a good person to do that. So that's a bit of a different thing too. It's like an assignment. It's like a task. Mm-hmm. And it's this word that you have that you think might benefit people for a long, long time to come. So that's also a different, a speak, you know, maybe if it's really good, uh, might have a bit of traction to it, might travel a little bit, but for the most part, you're speaking to a local audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, even on the internet, you're speaking to one, you know, to one audience, but uh, a book, you know, that'll travel. And you really just don't know where that's going to land. That's really just a word that you have that you need to get out further than a speak will take you. Mm-hmm. So for me, it usually ends up being like a, a, a word that I think needs to travel, mm. you know? So like, what is that thing? So all my books are kind of these maybe aha moments, uh, truths that I think will change things for people for a long time to come. 
Mm. Um, I'm not sure when you know. I think, uh, you know, Frederick Buechner says something along the lines of, you know, your heart's deep desire meets the world's greatest need. Mm. And in that intersection, there's a calling. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's this kind of combination of calling and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots of people feel the calling, but don't have the opportunity. And so that just might be a matter of timing, or that might be a sign. Yeah. Uh, these days, there's just so many different ways. Like I, I think the social media platforms can be unhelpful, but I also think they can be crazy helpful. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I liken them to, you know, like all the great awakenings. So like John Wesley, he just wanted to be an Anglican preacher until the you know Anglican church wouldn't let him preach inside anymore. So then he decided to go outside. And uh, then the open air became a thing, right? And that led to like great revivals all around when the, when, the, when the stuff got off the church platform and into the everyday places, things changed, you know, the spirit got loose. And I think the same is true in social media. I think it's been a change of platform, mm-hmm. really. We've gotten off the stages and into the social media where people live. So the danger is there for sure. But I also think the opportunities there. So right. I actually feel like one of the pivots for the church is probably to train people to communicate effectively through social media mm. as a tool of uh, of the kingdom, uh, rather than just try to police it. You know, that's a nightmare. That's a great point. And I think about the things that I rail against at times are people just behaving badly. How how do you how do you coach somebody to communicate well on social media? Yeah, I think that's what we're trying to figure out. Um, so that's one of the things. What it was about a year and a, two years ago, a year and a half ago, I was at a a boot camp. We hold these boot camps around the world. We used to in person, and about fifty women from all around the world would come in, and we would do. I do two full days of just full on coaching, like everything you need to know, all the things I know about communicating, like a fire hose, and then we would also network them together so that they're in community. And we did a couple, we've done some for men too. We're not, you know, we're not prejudiced or anything, but, um, (laughs) and then, uh, and one of the experts that we had at one of our, our places was a social media coach. She actually trains people in how to set up Instagram and what to say and how you do it. And like what the best ways are to create, um, like at Nona Jones, even on Facebook, right? Like how to create followers and interactive content instead of just promotion. And, uh, anyway, she did a follow-up coaching call with that group of people. And it was in the middle of her coaching call that I had that kind of epiphany. Like, I actually think this is like a great awakening moment where God has switched. Cause up until that time, I was like, how do I get women's voices onto platforms at events? And on that coaching call about a year and a half ago, I felt God say to me, you don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, get them on social media. So it was this weird, I was like, oh, okay. And then of course COVID hits and I was like, wow, who knew that was uh, exactly true. But I think this is actually something the whole church should be thinking through. Like how do we coach people to do social media in such a way that it's not just a personal uh, communication tool to get something off your chest, but it is a tool still. It's a strategic tool in, uh, in, in creating relationship and interaction and advancing the kingdom. Oh, that's really good. All right. Let me ask you about daily rhythms. Um, what do you do daily that helps you in your writing and speaking? Is it, are you a regimented kind of person where you're writing stuff down? Is it just kind of, oh, I keep a notebook handy at all times? Or what are the processes that you use just to make yourself a better communicator, either through the written word or the spoken word? Yeah. So for me, 
posture's key, key, key for everything in my life. And I do, I do this thing called Infinitum Life, which is a discipleship, a way of life, an open order that I invite anybody to practice. It's free online, infinitumlife.com. So I start my day off with three postures and a prayer. The first one is surrender. I, th- I call that the power posture. So I just say for this day, just today, I surrender all the things to the Lord. And I actually use my body. I hold my hands up and I'll pray this prayer. And then I, I, I practice a posture called generosity. And this is where I receive what I need. So this has been a game changer for me over the last few years. I used to think generosity was just giving more until it hurt more. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized, oh, it's a thing where you receive and then you give what you've received. It's an overflow. Mm. And so I started to receive daily what I needed for today, like the Lord taught his disciples. And I just would say, God, here's what I need for today. I do this with my kids before I send them to school. It's really beautiful. And then I say, out of everything that I've received today, so you need wisdom, do I need courage, do I need boldness, do I need mercy, do I need grace for today, do I need wisdom, do I need strategy, do I need words, Uh, energy, Mm. you know, all the things are all there, it's inexhaustible. So I say what I need, and then I receive it. And then I say, I'm just going to hold my hands open all day long, and everywhere I see this, I'm going to pour out what I've been given so freely. And one of the things I've noticed in my life, and I don't know if this is true of you, but I've started noticing that when I'm stingy, even with myself, so when I'm lacking grace or when I'm lacking, you know, energy or when I'm lacking mercy, I realize that I haven't received it. I haven't received properly. So I'll stop. Mm. I'll stop like, you know, making my life hard on myself. I'll stop that self-critical voice. I'll stop treating somebody meanly and I'll just stop and receive again. Say like, I think I might need more. Mm. I feels like I've run out of mercy here, whatever it is. And then my final posture is mission. So I hold my hands open to the world, sort of like the father uh, opened his to the prodigal son. Mm. And I set my attention on the lost. And uh, the loss, not just on the other reaches, far reaches of the world, but also the lost right near me, right? Those people mm-hmm. that are right near me. And I say, I want to center my life on them. So that posture changes every day for me. Mm. It just changes every day. And I stop, in, in so many ways, it stopped me from just being functional about my day yeah. and being much more relational and intentional about following Jesus during this day. So, you know, there still are some, if I'm going to write, if I'm writing to deadline, I lock myself in somewhere and I don't let myself out because Mm. I I won't get it done otherwise. So there are like, I mean, there's some, Mm -hmm. uh, I literally have a book I'm writing on right now. And I went to an Airbnb during the lockdown because there's nowhere else to go. I couldn't go anywhere, but I just drove like 15 minutes away from my house, locked myself in a condo uh, for two and a half days until I wrote uh, enough to call it the beginning of a book, you know? So. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you just have to do that. Well, I love those postures. I think that's so helpful for our listeners. And I think that's so practical of what you can do, whether you're going to write or speak or just live. Uh, I think that's helpful uh, for, for all of us. And I like the idea of sharing that with your kids too. What, what a beautiful idea. Okay. I want to wrap up with just kind of a lightning round here and you have been involved with or started some great organizations and I'm going to throw them out to you. Uh, you've already mentioned one, um, uh, infinitum. Am I saying that right? Yep. Sure. Okay. Unless you're from England, then you'd say infinitum. It's a big global infinitum. fight. Infinitum. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, 
All right. So I, I want to hear just kind of a couple sentences on each of these so our listeners kind of get an idea of what they are. Okay. First one is Amplify Peace. Amplify Peace is a movement that seeks to make peacemakers out of ordinary people. Okay. Brave Global. Brave Global mobilizes the church to reach vulnerable girls before they're trafficked. So Brave Global mobilizes churches to meet vulnerable girls, to get them before they're trafficked. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever created. I, I, I love it. Wow, that's great. Okay, the Women Speaking Collective. You mentioned this briefly. Yeah, so it's coaching, platform, tools, uh, community. There's a global collective you can join for monthly coaching calls and support and networking and collaboration for female communicators. It's mm, so great. Danielle, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find you on social and websites and those kind of things? Yeah, all the things, daniellestrickland.com, all the other things, you'll you'll find them. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been a blessing to me. I know it will be to our listeners as well. Thank you for all you're doing for the church, the capital C church, the kingdom of God. And for all of us as communicators, uh, we just learned a lot from you over the years. So keep up the great work and uh, stay warm up there in Canada. Oh, you got it. Thanks for having me and blessings to real life. Let's do church for real life. Let's do it. Thank you. Well, that was so rich. And I want to ask you just to take a moment and share it with a friend, maybe somebody that would be inspired by it, somebody that would be encouraged to start a movement of their own. And would you subscribe? That would be a great way to make sure that you never miss the new content that we put out. And if you would review, I would love to have you do that. In fact, Jay Moxley KC listed this great review. Super grateful for Rusty, his leadership, and this podcast. Great work and great help to my leadership. Thank you, Jay Moxley Casey. Grateful for all of those who have reviewed. So make sure that you do that. And next week, we'll be back with more conversations on mental health. Every month this year, we are taking at least one episode to talk about getting our mental health in order after the crazy year of COVID. Well, thanks for listening to Leading Simple, Help for the Overwhelmed. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.